0: Krista Tippett. Today, an architecture of decency. The rural studio in western Alabama draws architectural students into the design and construction of elegant, sustainable buildings in some of the poorest counties in the United States. This is architecture as a social art.
1: It's students and architects understanding the bigger, broader, societal responsibilities that they can have and take on i mean we we shape the environment i mean for west alabama we're incredibly optimistic we want people to dream about having a better world and that's what better to have than a bunch of 22 year olds who are just you know walk through walls to try and make it happen and it becomes infectious people love to be part of it
0: this is speaking of faith stay with us
2: Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute, sponsor of Karen Armstrong's Charter for Compassion. You can learn more at Fetzer.org.
0: I'm Krista Tippett. This hour we take you to western Alabama. Scattered across it are some 75 works of livable art, beautiful economical homes and public buildings. They're the products of an architectural adventure called the Rural Studio. This is architecture as a social art, as a force for repairing the fabric of human community as well as the natural world. From American Public Media, this is Speaking of Faith, public radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Today, an architecture of decency.
3: We're putting steel in between two 2x10s two to reinforce our, we have a cantilever, And that'll make the floor strong enough to hold it up.
0: The Rural Studio was co founded at Alabama's Auburn University in 1993 by the late legendary architect Samuel Mockby, together with Dennis Ruth, then head of the Auburn Architectural School. Mockby was a fifth generation white Mississippian known as Sambo, who left a much lauded private practice to pursue his sense of architecture as a social art. In its early years, the rural studio focused on the construction of private homes designed around improbable materials that had been used, donated, or discarded. Plastered bales of hay, used tires, carpet sample tiles. But these homes also aspired to the highest standards of design and durability. Samuel Mockby liked to say that everybody wants the same thing, rich or poor, not only a warm, dry room, but a shelter for the soul. Though he died in 2001, his philosophy and vision still infuse the rural studio's work today. Here he is describing the educational concept behind it.
4: Architecture is broad-based, but at the heart of architecture is a social order that that has to exist that architecture works with and so in order to expose students to that social order that exists it becomes at some point in their education becomes necessary for them to leave the classroom as I like to say of the university and enter the classroom of a community and to leave an abstract world to a world of reality.
0: In 2002, Andrew Freer succeeded Samuel Mockbee as the director and guiding architect of the Rural Studio. I interviewed him in 2007, and he's our guide this hour. We also visited the Rural Studio and bring you some voices of its student architects and their local clients and community partners. This part of Western Alabama belongs to what is known as the Black Belt of the South. It's been memorialized in modern American history and literature as a crucible of slavery, racial turmoil, and intense poverty. The landscape here is stunningly beautiful. Vast and lush rolling hills, fields of grazing cattle, catfish ponds, pine forests. Two gorgeous rivers, the Black Warrior and the Cahaba, are saluted with oak trees draped in Spanish moss and kudzu vines. Yet venture down one of the brilliant red clay roads, and you find poverty tucked inside this beauty. Extended families packed into one-bedroom shacks and rusted mobile homes with septic systems that often leach into drinking water. I asked Andrew Freer, who's originally from England, how he experiences these contrasts.
1: I mean, uh, I think one of the things that always distresses me a little bit is that, that the descriptions of the Black Belt and West Alabama are always they're always biased towards the social and political strife mm-hmm. and, and some of the poverty. And, and, of course, there is an extraordinary sort of burden of history. But uh, from my point of view, I've, I've found a place where there's sort of uh, extraordinary optimism. I mean, um, you may well, when you've been looking at the Royal Studio stuff, have come across a lady called Alberta Bryant, who was actually one of the first clients, well, the first client for the first project. She is struck down by um, diabetes and has lost both of her legs. But I never wished to meet somebody with a greater sense of humour a greater dignity than this woman. Tell uh, me about
0: the house that Rural Studio built for her.
1: Well, it was it was the first one, and um, it was made of uh, straw bales, and it was covered in stucco. And uh, it's a project that very much has Samuel Mockby's hands all over it. It's very, very clever. It's a kind of, I, I would say it's sort of got the classic southern porch, the great, family room on the exterior it's very very simple inside two very simple bedrooms and a bathroom and then these sort of three wonderful little sort of wagon wheels that stick out of the back that are very very small circular rooms that the nephews and nieces could oh. come and sort of lay down in And it's very smart you know they sort of they can be used for stories they can be used in different ways but fundamentally they were about the extended family and mm. Even today, I don't know which generation it is that's running in and out of the house, but if you go down there, you'll find the kids in those little sort of nooks in the back of the house enjoying them. Um, It's very beautiful.
0: Where was she living before?
1: They they were living in a, back to the kind of characterised West Alabama landscape, they were living in a broken down shack, literally right next to the building. It didn't have any running water didn't have any electricity. And uh, it's extraordinary that in twenty twenty first 21st century uh, United States of America, that you can find those sorts of conditions.
5: This is my bedroom with the skylight. And it also have um, a breeze, what you call it, be? Um, it I don't open remember if what it called
2: it. I think it was, yes, uh, it's
5: open up when it gets such to a certain temperature of the house, if it gets hot.
0: And here, then, it'll open up and let the air come in. There
3: was a Lucy
0: day. Harris is the daughter of Alberta Bryant, and she's also a client of the Rural Studio. When we went to see her, we also ran into Ben Kennard, one of the architectural students who built Lucy's house five years ago. He was visiting from Portland, Oregon, with his wife Kim. Here it becomes clear how the rural studio nurtures human connection and community even when it's designing individual custom-made houses. Lucy Harris's house was constructed around 72,000 stacked carpet tiles, and it is known as the Carpet House.
5: So, you know, everybody that comes, they just be amazed at this house made out of carpet. They can't believe it, you know. Go ahead, me. I
3: was just going to say it's... Um... The walls, the carpet walls are about 19 inches thick, and that's all solid material, so it's very, very easy to to maintain heat in it, even though there's a large window in the front. Um, It takes up about half of one of the uh, sides of the house, so yeah, Mm -hmm. it's it's, it's really quiet and really easy to heat.
5: I tell you, the house, you know, it just, when you go in, it's just a piece in my house, it's just a comfortable place to stay, you know that's what built this house up you know it was built out of love and compassion you know and caring for one another because even you know now uh, I didn't know Ben was coming down I didn't know him and Kim was coming down but you know they became a part of my family and we always stay in contact with each other and uh, I love them as uh, just like I love my children
3: one of my favorite memories of the of the project and working was on a weekly basis, you would come and be <laughs> on site with us and yes. and pray over us. Amen. And it's, it, that continues. Every every time we come to visit, there's there's always a parting prayer, and it's like a blanket.
0: Amen. These days, the rural studio is working on a different kind of private home, a prototype known as the 20K house. Rural Studio Director Andrew Freer says this might eventually invigorate the local construction industry.
1: It's a house that's inspired by a rural development grant that is given out, I I guess I should describe it as a $20,000 loan. And it's to the poorest of the poor, typically those that are on welfare, and they, they can qualify for this loan. And the prerequisite of the loan is that you go and you use this loan to build yourself a home. So what we have said is, let's see what we can actually build ourselves for $10,000 in materials, Mm -hmm. understanding that our labor is free. So we build into that, you know, there is an assumption that the other $10,000 would go to overhead and to costs and to for some degree of profit for a builder. And we've just finished the third one, which uh, I would say it's about 800 square feet. And I think it's a really beautiful thing. And it What we have an opportunity to do at the Rural Studio is that we can actually go and explore something like this and not lose our shirt. I mean, in Mm -hmm. some respects, I think in academia we have a responsibility. I have students who are sort of free labour at the moment with all of these different ideas. And so we're going out there and testing them and trying to come up with the right $20,000 house. And we're looking... In the future, I hope in the next two or three years to have to let a builder build these things and to have them scattered around Hale County. Would, so it's actually pretty ambitious.
0: Would they all be the same?
1: I, I mean, I, it's you know, for $10,000 in materials, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to say that they can all be the same. I think what we would hope is that the client begins to personalize them. But the one we've just done, I think, is spectacular. I think it could last 150 years. It's, <laughs> very, it's very smart. It's lifted off the ground. It only touches the ground in in six places. There's a minimal use of concrete. It's really highly insulated. It has good ventilation. It's got a beautiful outdoor space. And it's it's very clever. And, I mean, I, we've built on this idea over the last three years. And I, my hope really and truly genuinely is that, Not only can we help sort of solve some of the housing problems in West Alabama, but it will also give somebody a job, that a builder will begin to go and make a living doing this and give jobs to other people.
0: Who's going to be living in that house you just described to me?
1: We have in that particular house a couple of brothers. And uh, we started to look at the way that people lived in West Alabama and there was an awful lot of sort of situations or conditions of extended families and uh, you'd often find a mother or a grandmother with a daughter or a daughter-in-law living with a younger child so there would be sort of different generations living together Mm -hmm. and it's not often that architecture sort of responds to that kind of family dynamic and so the two brothers living together actually is sort of an ideal condition and we will watch how they live in it because that's the other thing is that we give this house away. These are experiments, so they give And then you away learn from what happens. To, and, and we sit back and watch, and mm-hmm. we listen, and we learn. And, you know, it's this worked and this didn't work. And so next year, we'll build on that conversation and improve on that.
0: Joe Moore is one of the brothers who lives in that 20K house, and he gave us a tour.
6: OK, this is our living room. That's where we sit, where we watch TV, over there. This is where we sit. This is our table. This is our sink sitting by the stove and stove sitting by the refrigerator. This is our cabinets over here. As everybody says they look like cubby holes. And you can take it and you can fix anything up make it look like you want. I'll let you all see the other side too. This is our screened in porch. And it's real, real nice to have. This is my brother's, um, his living quarters. Okay, y'all come on in. He has his his bedroom. He has um, what I call a small refrigerator. He has his little sink. He has his bed, and he has his little bathroom back here. It's real nice, though. We really enjoy it. We wouldn't take nothing for it because we... You know, we lived in an old house. The house we lived in was probably about 100 years old. It's over 100 years old. You know, watching them put a house together, that that was a sight. You know, really and truly, I'd come over here every day just to see what they'd done, and a lot of times we'd come two or three times a day. You know, they told us that they really appreciated us showing that kind of interest, and it really made them work harder. I love to hear the, the rain hitting that rooftop, too. That's, that'll put you to sleep.
0: You can take a visual tour of Joe Moore's 20K house and Lucy Harris's carpet house at our website, speakingoffaith.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, an architecture of decency. We're at the Rural Studio of Auburn University in Western Alabama, an experiment in architecture as a social art and a force for sustainability. And he'll say to you,
5: your friends may be few, but I've got a home for you. Oh, will say.
0: In recent years, the Rural Studio has focused more on designing and building public spaces, from a children's center to a farmer's market, from a park to a basketball court. This has involved a sensitive interface with civic leaders and local government. But it is very much in keeping with current director Andrew Freer's philosophy of architecture. He was trained, as he puts it, by architects who literally rebuilt England after World War II— And so, in a kindred but different sense than Rural Studio founder Samuel Mockby, Andrew Freer brings a vision of architecture as a world-changing, world-shaping profession.
1: What the beautiful thing for me about that is that you obviously, if you make a a piece of public architecture, you have the opportunity to to touch more people. I mean, last year we worked on a 40-acre public park in West Alabama, we were engaged with the hospital in Greensboro, Hale County Hospital, and we worked on the the Hale County Animal Shelter. And I would Mm. argue in those three buildings, we've touched more people in those three buildings than we previously did perhaps with all of the projects that we've ever done. And I... You know the projects get bigger, and there's some criticism. Of the project getting bigger, but I think that the you might don't if I whisper it, I, I <laughs> might suggest that I'm a socialist, uh, and I I, be- I do believe in the public realm. I mm-hmm. believe in in good local and central government, and I believe in the role that they can play. And, and, and that's a good and,
0: Yorkshire tradition, as opposed to an uh, Alabama tradition. Uh,
1: perhaps, yeah, um, but I, I I mean I think that they're also tremendous local politicians even in the place that I'm working that doesn't perhaps have any great tradition of that who are incredibly public and civic minded and are struggling against such deep ingrained lack I mean very often we're taking on public projects simply because there's a little bit of money, but there's not enough money to actually hire somebody to do the job, you know, mm-hmm. and, or to do it well enough. And we're able, because of, you know, essentially the free the labour of the students and our intensity and the, the sort of the gift of our time to make that money go much further mm-hmm. and, and even be able to employ local contractors because the projects are big enough where you can actually say, look, you can come and do the roof for us. And so that money starts to be spent and spread much further. And I think it... I hope that everybody wins. You know, the local communities enjoy... get to enjoy the fruits of the projects. The students get a terrific education. It allows us to bring people together who would never, ever, under normal circumstances, come together. And that's just a terrific joy, honestly.
0: In 2006, civic leaders Robbie Hoggle and Don Ballard started working on a community park, Lions Park, in Greensboro, Alabama, together with student architect Dan Splaingart.
7: With the formation of the planning committee and Auburn University Rural Studio guidance, uh, we were able to submit an application to the Baseball Tomorrow Fund, which is a outreach of Major League Baseball.
8: It was inherently complicated because it was going to be the county, the city, the Lions Club, the rodeo, the baseball, everybody involved, it seemed like a a role where the studio could actually do some good by stepping in and just putting some designs on the table and making people talk and not necessarily coming up with all the answers, but at least presenting the questions to get people thinking about solutions.
4: And once Auburn stepped in, started doing some designing of... You know what we would like. We we looked at it. We talked about it. We voted on it. Each little part of the park has been talked about, scrutinized, uh, relooked at. Come back with another plan. Uh, the backstops here—you'll never see a back. I have never seen a backstop with this type of design. And when you get off and you're in the field playing, or when you see the big backstop the way it is, you think you're in a a stadium somewhere, you know. I get that feeling. Um,
7: One thing for certain, when these kids get out here playing baseball, they're not black and they're not white. The baseball players, and w- with the joint planning committee and everyone working together and leaning in the same direction, in, in the 44 years that I've been in Greensboro, it's been by far the most positive, uh, unifying single activity that's happened.
8: Yeah, I think, like, even just the geographic location of the park is coincidence in a way, but also strategic in that it's not in a sort of polarized, this is a white neighborhood or this is a black neighborhood. It's just a big piece of land on the south end of the city.
7: We actually had a lady from baseball tomorrow to fly down and come to the opening ceremonies, and and we were out here looking at it, and she was looking around, and, and actually we have four full-size fields and two smaller t-ball fields so that we can actually have six games going on at the time and and one of her comments was you know we before we never got six fields for a hundred thousand dollars so they were very pleased with what we were able to produce with the funds that they provided
4: as you can see or hear there's kids out here right now practicing football on a baseball field Uh, They play their games on a regulation football field, but this is the only grassy area in Greensboro where you could scrimmage. Uh, And so, you know, you're building a quality of life for everybody in this area.
1: I think all that we're trying to do is is the right thing. I mean, there's many things that we can do in West Alabama, and uh, we try to enjoy life. I mean, I think that... The act and art of building is such a positive and optimistic thing. I mean, just seeing something come out of the ground is incredible. Um, One of the really beautiful things about a place like West Alabama is that um, there are many, many antebellum homes still remaining in West Alabama. And many of the homes that were built... The big white uh, houses. The the the... big white houses, absolutely, Mm -hmm. are tremendously well built, very, very cleverly built. And they've survived, not just because they're big white houses and that they're cared for, but because they were very smart. They have big roofs, they're very well ventilated, they have big porches, they have big window openings, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, they're held off the ground. And our students go and look at them every day. And it's not to sort of copy the big white architecture, but it's to sort of think about the street smarts of it. I mean, today... Our contemporary society is housing people in tin cans where there are very few openings. Everybody has the air conditioner. You, you have two seasons. You have the air conditioning season and you right. have the heating season. <laughs> and right. it's, it's dreadful and it's very unsocial and there's no community to it. And it, uh, it's very sad that we have, you know, we've forgotten how to live, I think. If anything, I hope that our 20K house can battle against that and... and you know, we, we can't afford to run all of these air conditioning units, so we've got to figure out natural ways to do it and right. rediscover just what the Romans and the Greeks did. You know, my goodness sake, you don't have to look back very far, even, even into West Alabama, to see that they survived without air conditioning pretty
0: damned well. Right. We've tried to capture the aesthetic and historical context of this part of Alabama through rich visuals and sound, explore our interactive map of the area, which gives a sense of place and the vast amount of space the Rural Studio Projects span, And as part of my background research, I read an inspirational essay by Samuel Mockby that conveys the spirit and ideology he brought to the work of the Rural Studio. You can read it on our website, speakingoffaith.org. After a short break, we'll hear about the Rural Studios' advances in what Andrew Freer calls zero-maintenance construction. They're also recycling entire buildings, creating something new while preserving history and memory. I'm Krista Tippett. Stay with us. Speaking of Faith comes to you from American Public Media.
2: Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute, sponsor of Karen Armstrong's Charter for Compassion. You can learn more at Fetzer.org and by Gather.com, the social network where people can make new friends who share their interests. You can meet people talking about faith at speakingoffaith.gather.com.
0: Welcome back to Speaking of Faith, Public Radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. I'm Krista Tippett. Today, an architecture of decency. We're at the Rural Studio of Auburn University in western Alabama, a program that draws architectural students into the design and construction of elegant, economical buildings in some of the poorest counties in the United States. We're exploring what happens here as an example of sustainability, both material and spiritual, And driven by architectural principles. Our guide this hour is Rural Studio Director Andrew Freer, whom I spoke with in 2007. Freer succeeded Samuel Mockby, the visionary architect who founded the Rural Studio in 1993, and who was haunted by what he saw as the unfinished business of reconstruction in the South. Dick Hudgens has an architectural practice in Selma, Alabama, and he also teaches the history of architecture at the Rural Studio. He does this, as he puts it, three-dimensionally.
9: Well, some of the houses we see that we tour were built right before the Civil War, and I think if you know the history of the Black Belt in West Alabama, uh, it's one of the poorest areas in the nation now, but not then. Not in the eighteen forties and fifties, particularly eighteen fifties, it was one of the most prosperous parts of the nation. And the houses had to work with a climate without any kind of artificial systems. And I think a lot of architecture students today tend to take artificial systems for granted and don't consider orientation, climate and sun angles and prevailing winds and things like that. And so these houses are a great document on how to build with simple systems to work with the climate. You know, they've survived, they've lasted, and they have certain principles and certain truths. might even use the term architectural truths that are still valid today. And so I emphasize proportion, quality of light, and how that impacts design. And then the other thing that I try to emphasize is slavery and the effect of slavery uh, on architecture and this and just about all those buildings we see would not be possible if we were not for slavery. It's a re- direct result of that. And so you can't teach architectural history as just buildings. You've got to understand what was going on socially and culturally. I don't know that I could ever have anyone that I teach fully understand slavery. I don't know that I fully understand it myself. But it's a subject that has to be talked about. I mean, it's, uh, it's just embedded into everybody's history in America. Okay. And so if you can understand how people can create great beauty but being in that kind of situation, that's like a triumph of spirit. For example, uh, some of these beautiful curving spiral staircases, all the little small pieces of wood are put together and it creates this wonderful volute at the end of the stair for the railing and that thing. And I'm, I'm telling the students, well, You build that with just hand tools. How do you do that? It's a mystery. I still don't quite understand it. And it's just as important to see the slave houses, which we do see some of those, and we see the outbuildings and the cookhouses and the kitchens and things like that to understand that whole dynamic.
0: Recently, the Rural Studio has begun to experiment with recycling older buildings to create architecture that is at once traditional and new. Again, Rural Studio Director Andrew Freer.
1: We've taken buildings that probably other people would tear down and said, well, no, this building has some value. What can we put our time and energy into this building? Um, to remake it, reuse it, and make it useful to contemporary life. That also doesn't mean that that building disappears, so that the the sort of the collective memory... I mean, we can't just throw things away. The the easiest thing is not to just throw throw things away. So we've really concentrated on remaking and reusing. We rebuilt a church. We actually literally demolished a church and used between 70 and 80 percent of the materials. So you took it down,
0: but you then reuse the materials for a completely exactly. different structure.
1: The congregation knew and understand that. And, I, and there's, there's a.
0: You actually retain the history while also doing something completely new.
1: Absolutely. And, and I think typically anybody else would have just pushed it into a pile and burnt it. And we took the time to recycle it and plane off some of the white paint that was on the church and reuse it. And they love that. They know that. They feel that. And that, I think, spiritually is incredibly important. The issue that comes up when you do recycle and you take chances on some of these materials and you do experiments is that they may fail or they may have to be refinished. Mm -hmm. And um, in a place where there's no money for maintenance, our sort of focus, particularly with some of the public buildings, has been to say, well, look... I can't guarantee that we can come back and rebuild this or right. that the people can afford the paint to repaint this. So we've tried not to do that. We try to literally use materials that have a, a natural lifespan of their own that's as long as we can possibly find, but they don't rely on any level of maintenance. And that's just... It's, it's incredibly important. It's really been born of necessity. This one?
10: Here's JFC1. one right here... So we going to find two and three. So this trailer is largely full of the mostly floor joists. Those pieces, there are floor joists for the side chapels, the baptistry, and the vestry. So they're smaller. And you can see we've got to be really careful when we're sliding these things, because if you accidentally slide a board across another and take the tag off of it,
1: yeah, yeah. You're not gonna know board <laughs> we're not going to know what that is anymore.
10: Correct. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can see a lot of them that are rotted that we're not going to be reusing necessarily. You can see on this piece. Where um, it rotted away, they scabbed a piece here. This is called a scab where well, you add it to the side to help carry that load. We're going to cut that scab off. Try to keep most of the original material so we're liable to cut it here and, and piece it. in a new piece, right, that'll fit in the same plane. How are we going to fit it in? Let's um, it. Well, we'll splice we'll it in. Splice we'll it. use some, you know, steel products to put it in there. We're also going to brand it with today's date, 2007, Okay. so that if you're ever to find this church in a hundred years, you would know the pieces that were added when we did this,
3: right which here. is kind of
10: a nice way to keep up with it right. rather than painting or anything. So someone will be able to follow kind of the timeline. You see what we're going to do is um, let's have somebody out there look at these. Will or
0: Allie? You use a phrase so that you're aiming for zero-maintenance structures. Mm-hmm. But I mean, what an amazing concept. I mean, talk about mm-hmm. sustainability, which is now a catchword mm-hmm. for everyone, mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Well,
1: we use the term sustainability with a small s. There's always a lot of questions. People come and see the work and say, well, you know, why aren't you using composting toilets or why aren't you using uh, solar panels? And the truth of the matter is, it's not just that the sort of the, the huge upfront costs of things like that, but the fact of the matter is that I am better off making sure that if I put in a septic system, that the local people can fix it if it fails. And for me, that's sustainability with a small s. It's Mm -hmm. not trying to reinvent the wheel. It's simply recognising the capabilities of local people when they're dealing with essential services. And perhaps that's not particularly ambitious, but you have to choose your moments with those things, I think. I mean, if all of the discussion about how the the forms and things of the rural Studio are strange and look very different and to contemporary life. At the rural Studio, we very rarely actually have a conversation about the sort of the stylistic nature of the architecture. It's more often it's about, well, how do I decide which material to use here? And, mm. and often the forms are actually driven by the materials. The fact, for example, that You know, corrugated tin, it's easier to cut it one way than it is to cut it the other way. So somehow the form and the shape and the kind of the grain of the material can actually begin to generate the form of the building. You respond to the type of material that you're using. And very rarely do we say, well, you know, I want to do a tower because it looks cool.
10: And then really it's, how much of this do I need? How much is it just about a bed to sleep in? and how much is it for something else so that if something happens which is quite honest you know one false move and you can no longer really walk up this stair anymore
6: Yeah. so, so the question start.
10: is if, if it's for me when I'm really healthy then I can minimize this stair if it's for me yeah. when I'm old as yeah. well then I can I want to make it maximize so I think it's kind of where what you guys to imagine is who it's for because it's sort of
2: that's why I've been trying to create like it's a, an, a real stair rather than right. a ladder because we're kind of wary of that
0: Issue and- View an audio slideshow of the students' design critique and see other buildings they're creating at speakingoffaith.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. This hour, we're in western Alabama at the Rural Studio, a model of sustainability driven by an architectural vision.
2: This single-pitch roof we talking about, I mean, probably could afford if you could get high windows and bring, like, right
1: down. Another thing is that we've really tried to do relative to sustainability out here is to understand the long-term sustainability of the programming. Because if you give somebody a public building, right. if there's no money for the long-term programming of that, the building will fail if it's empty. And I've been you know, extraordinarily proud over the last few years of how really 50% of the work that our students do is working on... On the programming of the building, the long-term survival of the building, which is not just about the architecture. It's about hmm. who's going to work here, how are we going to fund this, getting into the grant writing, getting into the talking to different organizations who will be getting involved to make sure that they have enough legs to help us help the building survive and, and, and what happens in it survive inside and it, it. Is
0: there a synergistic relationship? I mean, do you think that having an architecture of decency, that's one of the terms that's yeah. used of this, having an architecture of decency, housing a program, is that also something that strengthens and supports the program?
1: It's responsible. I mean, it, it's responsibility at the root of it. I mean, in Hale County, we've, we're just building an animal shelter. And, mm-hmm. and I, I think that the students spent their entire first term educating the client as to what they needed to do to offer the citizens of Hale County an animal shelter in terms of liability, in terms of assurance, in terms of collecting money to make sure that this thing worked. And and that's just part of the responsibility that I think the architects need to accept. Mm. I mean, we before Sambo died, we used to talk about the education of a citizen architect. And I think it's students and architects understanding the bigger, broader societal responsibilities that they can have and take on. I mean, we we shape the environment. You know, when planning and planners were so sort of badly mauled in the 60s and the 70s, they've lost their sort of ability to dream about the way that we live. And if so if we don't have those folks doing that, that means probably that the architects are the only ones who can hmm. be the societal dreamers. I mean, for West Alabama, we're incredibly optimistic. We want people to dream about having a better world. And that's, you know, what better to have than a bunch of 22-year-olds who are just, <laughs> you know, have got so much energy and, and will walk through walls to try and make it happen and it becomes infectious people love to be part of it I mean they just the people have just been blown away by the energy and commitment and enthusiasm that students bring to these projects I mean you know in the last few years the students taking on these community projects have actually virtually accepted that their project will take two years even though technically they're only out here for a year's education. So mm-hmm. they, they graduate on May the 5th and then they spend an extra year building and finishing off their mm-hmm. projects just because they want to. And that's like, wow, you know, what a young person that is to, mm-hmm. to walk off into the world having shown that they can make that kind of commitment to the world and to society. And that's just, for me, it gives me goosebumps that they'll do that.
0: Boys and girls clubs have to be located on city owned property in order for the Boys and Girls Club of America to come in and take over and we've been really working with the town closely for the past year and a half on um, on getting a client base together basically, a group of citizens that will oversee the project and will will take over the project when we leave and help raise funds for it and help run the club.
2: When you have a town of 512
10: people and you're building the largest building in town. It's hard for people to miss what's going on. <laughs> and so everyone's pretty aware. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah,
0: We've been in parades. We were in their homecoming parade yeah. last year, and we're in their Christmas parade. And it's really great. seeing. They all come by and wave to us, and well, when you have they a... know who we are. <laughs> you know, the word charity um, is a word that Samuel Mockby used, and I think the word itself has has become problematic. Um, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Mm, but it does, the reasons it's become problematic also have to do with kind of a fine line between between helping other people and being paternalistic, or, yeah. you know, between making yeah. lives better. <laughs> right. How do you, you know, is that a line you walk? How do you think about this?
1: For my students, we don't really talk about it being charity. I'll be absolutely frank to you that the... the what we see as being the exchange that's taking place here is that our client is a good and willing and interested and observant and rigorous and questioning client. And that's the privilege that we have in that situation, mm-hmm. that, yes, we will we will work with you. We want to listen to you. We want you to be very critical about what we do. Don't just say, give us anything. And, and we work with people who don't know what an architect does so we have to educate them as to what an architect can bring to a situation we educate them to understand drawings to engage in a conversation about spaces to engage in you know the question of what do you want when people have never been asked what they Hmm. want we make lots of models we make lots of perspectives so people can begin or at least try to begin to imagine themselves in that place. Because mm-hmm. they've never been asked to do that before. They've never been asked to imagine before. And that's that's an amazing situation to be in as a student, I think.
0: Um, you know, if you look at what you've learned or gotten out of this, or if you look at the place, not, not really the students, I think you've talked a lot about the students, but the people in the region or that part of Alabama. I think you're now in a... Hmm. what you're an honorary citizen of Marion, Alabama, is that right? Um, <laughs> yeah. How do you think about that? What, what words would you put to what what the worth of this is um, why it matters
1: I mean as opposed to my teachers in London or in england I, I they were able to make such large, sweeping, bold moves, and in West Alabama, what you really appreciate is small victories very incremental interventions. There's no money to do huge great master plans and huge great visions, but what you do is just just sort of l- one little piece at a time. For example, we were just working in a public park, Lions Park, and there was an area of asphalt, and I always say the word asphalt wrong, asphalt. Asphalt, yes. <laughs> asphalt. My students will love that. Mm. Um, we wanted to take automobiles out of the park, and our inclination was to tear up that piece of asphalt and the local judge said no you just we can't do that you know that represented a substantial public investment and for us and and you have to understand that i i for one don't think that you should do that and what that forced us to do was to begin to make creative interventions into that piece of asphalt that was a parking lot and is no longer a parking lot. It's now a a pedestrian surface. And our students have begun to imagine ways of dealing with that surface and putting planting in that surface that softens it, that stops it taking in so much heat, makes it more beautiful. And and he challenged us. And if he just said, tear it up, we'd have torn it up. But Mm. he said, no, this was a value. And for me, it was just a marvelous example of you know local politicians saying you 're doing the right thing and provoking us into thinking laterally about the way we were going to deal with our preconceptions of this surface because everybody thinks of asphalt as being its automobiles, and our students have been provoked into this situation of Making a surface that will be unlike any surface anywhere in the world, and you know, <laughs> okay. you know, it'll be changed completely. But it's those small changes and and valuing what exists that you can't just go in there mm-hmm. and tear it up and start again with everything. And I, I enjoy that sort of. Oh, well, I delight in the sort of the beginning to sort of fix to the fabric, you know, sew together in very, very small ways, both architecturally but also sort of community-wise.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and and families' and individuals' lives as well. As,
1: absolutely. That's the sustainable aspect of that. You know, maybe if we have a good public park in West Alabama, kids will stay in West Alabama. I mean, Don Ballard, who who works for Alabama Power locally and is on the Lions Park Committee, you know, his family of gone off to university and all that and he's a local guy who's got involved with this park and his he has nothing to gain from this other than he wants to make Greensboro a really good place to live he doesn't feel that it needs to get a Nissan plant or a Toyota plant he just wants it to be a good place with a good education and good public parks he comes to public meetings. He'll, he'll be at a public meeting on Monday night to talk about the future of the park and what our students are doing. And, and he steps up and says, you yeah, know, we should do this because it's the right thing to do for our town. Right. The it's, it's citizen incredible.
0: meeting you, citizen architects. <laughs>
1: absolutely,
0: uh-huh. absolutely. Uh,
4: the young men and women that's in their fifth year, some of them graduated in May and they committed staying here until this project was completely done. And they could be using their degree, making money in the real world, but they opt to, to um, commit to getting this part of the project done, in which they did. This whole park is still a you know, a, yeah. work, you in know work in progress, and, and it's going to take a little bit more time to get it done, but it's so much better than what it was.
6: Well, after I finish architectural school, hopefully in another three years, um, I'm hoping to go back to Kuwait and take everything I've learned from here and apply it there.
10: You know, the root of the whole thing is to make someone's life better in, in some way. And the reason, you know, that the, the projects are so successful and they get a lot of the acclaim that they do um, as pieces of architecture, I think really just grows from that Um it's, it's pretty easy to make good architecture I think when you have the right intent behind it
0: I'll never forget one time when I was here I was it was just probably like my first week as a thesis student and we were all so arrogant and we all thought we ruled the world and we just didn't have a clue because we were young seniors and this guy from the town just came by and, and had a big hammer and another big tool and he said which one of you can frame a window and all of us just shut up. <laughs> None of us knew how to build something that we could detail and draw and form and mm-hmm. in so many different ways but we just couldn't do it and I, for me that was, that was one of the most memorable moments <laughs> of sort of a humbling experience but from that you grow
8: There's a phrase that Sambo used to use a lot that still is around the studio a lot which is proceed and be bold. There was a lot of moments for all of us in this project where we were in over our heads, the funding wasn't coming through, we almost lost our grant We'd screw up water lines, uh, you know, the lights wouldn't turn on. All these bad things happen, but once you get a track record of just proceeding and being bold, you kind of get used to it, that this is how we attack problems, we just keep going.
6: And I think given opportunity, I think communities do pull through, and, uh, you know, you have to believe that.
8: I mean, that's that's been a lesson from this project, is what it feels like to take on something bigger than you think you can do and end up doing it. And it's not by virtue of one person's brilliance and endurance, it's by everyone kind of... Being in to together and rowing that boat forward till you get there.
5: Even one man, he had came and he had told me that uh, said he got a a house with so many rooms, you know, he got a big house and all this. and he told me he said he'll give it to me for for my carpet house. I told him I said no, <laughs> I keep my carpet house and he can keep what he got because this was built special for me, you know, and I thank God for it.
0: The Rural Studio is based in New Bern, Alabama, and is a program of the Auburn University School of Architecture. Andrew Freer is its director and an Auburn associate professor.
3: Me and my best friend Lillian and her blue take him dog Eddie Sitting on the front porch, cooling in the shed, singing every song
0: Back in 2007, when I first interviewed Andrew Freer, our producers spent several days in the Black Belt of Alabama talking to the professors and students of the Rural Studio and the people being impacted by its work. And this is how our staff blog, SOF Observed, got its start, as a way to share what we were seeing and experiencing on the ground. Look for the Rural Studio Road Trip link on the show's website. We also share the stories of four extended families living in the hamlet known as Mason's Bend. In our narrated slideshow, we have stunning pictures of these incredible homes tucked away on the banks of the Black Warrior River, modernist structures with names like the Butterfly House, the Glass Chapel, the Carpet House. And you can hear Samuel Mockby and the people of Mason's Bend speak about their lives and their experiences with the Rural Studio as they live in and with these iconic buildings. Look for this and more rich video and maps of Rural Studio projects, including a tour of the 20K house, on our website, speakingoffaith.org.
3: Without
0: a sound. In the red dirt Speaking of Faith is produced by Colleen Scheck, Chris Hegel, Nancy Rosenbaum, and Shuba Bala. Trent Gillis is our senior editor. Special thanks for this program go to Michelle Coombs, Linda Shook, David Beegey, and Dan Splaingard, as well as other students, staff, and clients of the Rural Studio. Kate Moose is the managing producer of Speaking of Faith, and I'm Krista Tippett.
2: You don't have to worry. Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute, sponsor of Karin Armstrong's Charter for Compassion. You can learn more at fetzer.org. Additional support comes from the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at fordfoundation.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. And the George Family Foundation, funding innovative ideas in integrative medicine, education, and spirituality in everyday life. Sustainability coverage is supported in part by the Candida Sustainability Fund, furthering values that contribute to a healthy planet. Speaking of faith is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation.
0: Next time, The Poetry of Creatures, exploring a new reading of the Bible's sense of the relationship between human beings and the natural world. We speak with biblical scholar Ellen Davis, and Wendell Berry reads some of his poems. Please join us. American Public Media.